Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I am the Youth Director here at SFBC. This week, Pastor Rod Heppel continues on our series going through Advent. Enjoy! Now, we started our Advent series last Sunday when Pastor Tim uh, introduced us to the whole idea that for the next four weeks, we're going to look really intensely at the Incarnation, which he said is simply God coming as a human being. And that's good. Let's keep it simple, right? The word Incarnation can sound big and fancy, but it means that God came in human flesh into this existence. John's Gospel says, for the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. But we need to pause here, because think about this. God, the creator of the entire universe, steps down into his creation in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is all about, the birth of Jesus, God coming into the very world that he created in order to recreate. As Charles Wesley wrote in his hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which we often sing at this time of year, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And you know, Emmanuel means God with us. C.S. Lewis was the one who used the term the grand miracle, and so we've borrowed that title from him for this sermon series. And as we slow down and think about and reflect on the incarnation, I think we realize why he called it the grand miracle. It really is the miracle through which all the other miracles either point to or stem from. There is no resurrection without the incarnation. The incarnation is really this great mystery that God would, as part of his plan of redemption, come into his own creation. Now, last week we handed out that devotional booklet uh, called The Grand Miracle, and it's a number of um, devotionals leading up to Advent or through Advent. If you did not get one, we have them at the back today. I think the ushers have them, right? And you will be able to get one if you didn't get one. And if you're watching online today and you think, well, I would like one, you let us know. Write our office, uh, office at sardisfellowship.com, and we'll make sure that you get one as well. If you're shut in and you're not able to get out, we want to get that to you. But to set the tone for the sermon series, Tim, last Sunday, read this quote from that little devotional. And I want to read it for us. And you can read along with me with the words here. So this is kind of like the introduction to that little booklet. You may be entering the Advent season with a sense of inadequacy. Perhaps your life is filled with great difficulty, the deep grief of loss, discouragement, financial concerns, addictions, depression, or even a sense that God is far from you. The good news is that you are actually in a wonderful place to begin a meaningful Advent journey. For this season isn't about what we must accomplish, but rather about what God has already done in the miracle of the Incarnation. In fact, all we need to do is invite God into the authentic reality of our messy, broken, complicated lives. Any amens out there from the Baptist? Okay. Listen to this part. To be transparently present to him in the midst of our weakness. How do we best do this? Slow down and spend time in quiet, as Jesus taught us, to read the words of Scripture and to listen to our God right where we are. Man, it's hard to slow down at Christmas, isn't it? But honestly, I think if we're going to understand more deeply the mystery and power of the Incarnation, it does take reflection. Okay, so that's where we're going. Uh, For most of us who've grown up in the church, we've heard this word over the years. We know the idea. In fact, we become pretty comfortable with it. But can I say this? 
I think that we haven't really allowed ourselves sometimes to dig down deep and grasp what it really means. I know for myself, what I've come to understand even in the last couple of weeks is that there's more to be grasped, for sure. And secondly, that which I have already known, I think I take for granted. We need to look at it through fresh eyes. We don't want it to become stale. The incarnation is a mystery, but it's very powerful. And the more we understand, the more it impacts our lives. It's like we have this thing that we carry around with us in our pocket, and we don't realize how valuable it is. Now, I know I've told this story before, but there's enough new people to start as fellowship. I'm going to tell it again. Years ago, my wife was shopping at Safeway. And at that time, with your receipt, they would give you this little card. It was a Texas Hold'em card. And being an avid gambler, my wife immediately opened it. Just kidding. She brought it home and she gave it to me. She goes, do you think this is for real? And what it was with three tabs would open up and all three of them had a three-carat tennis diamond bracelet. And I looked at it I said, nah, those things are always a scam. And she goes, well, nonetheless, take it, you know, stop at Safeway. Okay, so I put it in my pocket. Uh, for an entire week, I walked around with that in my pocket. You know, I didn't wear the same pants for the entire week. Okay, just to be clear, okay. But I, I cleaned out my pockets on more than one occasion, almost threw it in the garbage when I thought, oh, I really should stop at Safeway. I finally got to stop at Safeway. And I just bought my groceries, go up to the cashier, and I give it to her, and I go, is this for real? To which she just lets out this huge shriek, and she's like, yes, 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 yes. Do you know how much that's worth? And I'm like, no, but I'm starting to get really interested. And so I went to the counter and found out it was for real. And I think it's like that as Christians, that we have this treasure, this mystery, this great thing called the incarnation that we know in our head and we carry around in our pocket, but we haven't really taken the time to go more deep into understanding it. We just don't realize how valuable it is that God is with us. Now, before we dig into the passage uh, that I want us to look at today, uh, there are some thoughts that I think we often have around the incarnation, because last week Tim took the time to kind of give an introduction to it. And he said, you need to understand that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And we think, well, how? How is it that these two natures can exist in one person at the same time? How does that work, right? And for those of you who missed Archie Spencer's class this morning, it would have been a good one to attend. I'll tell you, heads up, one more week, next Sunday, 9 a.m., down in the fireside room, uh, he's been speaking on the Trinity. So how, how do these two natures work? Does, does he operate out of one more than the other? Does he tap into one at one time and the other at another time? To what degree has Jesus experienced humanity if he is God? Like, can he truly identify with me and my experience here with suffering, life, and temptation if he is God. So in essence, we wonder, how much like me is Jesus? How much was Jesus' experience as a human being like my experience as a human being? And did he have an advantage that I don't have? So these are the kinds of questions we ask around the Trinity uh, and around the nature of Christ, I should say. But I'm going to tell you that for 2,000 years, the church has been grappling with this. And uh, for, um, you know, if you want to know more, read the creeds. You know, go to the Nicene Creed, the Chelsea, Chelsea Don Creed, and you will understand a little bit more deeply about how the church has wrestled with these things. And while I think that there are things that are helpful about the conversation of how the nature of Christ works, to be honest, we don't truly know. To be honest, we have human limitations that do not allow us to go there, and the Word of God does not disclose it. And so we have to live with this tension, this mystery of the wonder part. What the Bible does say to us is that Jesus is both God and man, 
fully at the same time. And I think we need to hold on to that equally and fully at the same time. So what am I going to do today in this talk then? Well, today the goal of what I want us to do is to look at the nature of Christ being fully God, fully man, and try to understand how he invites us uh, into believing that he identifies in our humanity because he too has been human. He has walked this journey. And so he can identify with us in our time of need. Last week, Tim was looking at why is God silent. Today, we're looking at why is God distant in my time of need? Why is it that I feel like he's not close to me when I'm going through my hard time? Now, I don't think that that's necessarily always a person's experience, but it is often. And I, as a pastor, I hear about people's experiences when they're going through hardship. And it can go both ways. There will be some who say, where is God? How come he feels distant? And then there will be others who go, God is so close. And I've often wondered, well, Lord, when I go through a hardship, I want the one where you're close. So how do I know if I'm going to have that experience when I go through a hard time? It's an honest question that we need to look at. George Newdorf, as I mentioned, did pass away this last week. And I saw him on the Friday morning, and he passed away on the Sunday, or on the Monday morning. And uh, I was talking with George, and he said something along these lines to me. He says, Rod, God is so near to me. He's giving me his peace each step of the way. The devil comes to me in the night, and he tries to rob me of that peace, but I claim Jesus, and he leaves me. God has given me such peace. So I'm sitting there listening to an insider who's facing death, and his body is slowly shutting down, and he's saying, God is near to me. And I say, wow, that's the peace I want to experience when I go through any hard time, let alone when I face death. So how does the incarnation meet me in my time of need? How does it speak to my time of need? And I have one passage, and only one, that I really want us to look at today. I'm leaving these verses up there a lot today because I want you to take them home with you. So we're going to spend some time here. Hebrews 4, verses 14, 15, and 16. There's lots of passages I could have turned to. This is the one I want you to take away today. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Isn't that great? Four things I want us to see from this passage. There is something we have. There is something we hold on to. There is someone who knows us and there is an invitation given to us. That's what we're going to take away from this passage. So let's start with what we have. Right there in verse 14. Therefore we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We have a great high priest, and his name is Jesus. Think about that. You have Jesus. You own him. No, we don't talk like that. doesn't sound very respectful. But we are people who love to own stuff, are we not? You own Jesus. There isn't anything you can own that is greater than that. And he owns you. When we are in Christ, we are owned by him, but he's ours. He's ours. And that's what Tim was trying to help us understand last week too, that this is the greatest thing that we could ever hope to have. 
Now, you might not be familiar with this language of a high priest, and so let's just take a moment and look at that. Um, in the nation of Israel, they had a, a religious system, and the high priest played a role. And the next verses in Hebrews, chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, kind of outline this a little bit. It says this, Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. You tracking so far what the role of a high priest is? Chosen from amongst the people to offer to God sacrifices for their sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant or like unaware, okay, and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. Okay, that's a pretty good summary of what this idea of this high priest is being related to Jesus Christ. The high priest was a human being who identified with other humans and could, uh, you know, represent them well. Gently, he dealt with them in their weaknesses because he knows his own weaknesses. And when he came to God, he couldn't come to God on his own. He had to come to God with a sacrifice for his own sins before he could come to God once a year into the Holy of Holies, only one person to offer a sacrifice on behalf of all the sins of the nation of Israel. So that's the idea that we have in this high priest that's now being said of Jesus that he is a great high priest. He's a great high priest. What makes him great? Well, it says here that he's done this in the heavenly realm, okay? He's ascended into heaven. So he's done it in the real temple. He is presenting or has presented his offering before God in his presence. Secondly, he did it once for all. It lasts forever. The priest of Israel had to do it year after year. It covered for a time. Jesus says, no, it is finished. It's covered forever. So he's done this before God, and he's done it forever. And 1 Timothy 2.5 picks up on this, that there is only one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So Jesus is our mediator. He is our high priest, if that language of mediator helps you understand that role. And the point is, this is what we have. We have a high priest who intercedes on our behalf before God. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God to us. He is perfect God and perfect man, so that he perfectly represents God to us in a way in which we can understand, and he perfectly represents humanity to God in a way that we could be accepted by him. He's conquered sin and death in his life. Therefore, even though I do struggle in life, even though I will die, I am safe in Christ, and no one can take that away from me. That's point number one. Now, point number one leads to point number two, which is also found in this verse because it says that we are to hold firmly to the faith we profess. So the whole idea there is whatever struggles you might face in life, don't let them lead you away from holding on to this faith. We are to hold on. Now, whether it was, you know, their challenge which looks different from ours, maybe it doesn't matter. Life is challenging. Life poses all sorts of different struggles. We went around this room and started to name what everyone was struggling with. We'd get a pretty good idea of humanity's struggle in this world. And in the midst of whatever suffering or whatever kind of pain that you're facing, don't lose your faith. I mean, isn't that part of the experience? Isn't it that people come up against something that seems so overwhelming that they no longer can believe that God is truly there, that God is distant, they feel, and that they can't trust God with that situation. Jesus was made like us. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away 
from the living God. So what, the, what that's trying to say in Hebrews 3 is just that any one of us could be put in such a situation that our heart grows cold. And in growing cold, we can commit this sin of unbelief. So I don't know what your struggle is. I don't know what you're facing, but that's a reality that we all have to be careful of. In Hebrews 4, verses um, uh, 15, picks up on the third point. So the first point, know who we have in our high priest. The second point is know that we hold firmly to our faith. And the third one um, is that we have a high priest who is able to understand who we are. He knows us. He's able to empathize with our weaknesses He's tempted in every way that we are, yet he's without sin. Do you see that there? Does that grab your attention? He is an empathetic high priest who understands what we're going through. He knows what it feels like to have temptation, and he knows what it feels like to have struggle and suffer, and therefore he identifies with us. I think one of the things we wonder about, though, is this. To what degree was Jesus tempted in every way just as we are, right? Do we ever stop and think about that? I think we do. And I think somehow we kind of think, well, he was tempted in different ways, and he struggled in different ways, but he didn't struggle in my way. And therefore, we wonder if he really does identify with my human experience. And I think what we need to understand is that Jesus, no, he didn't live every single person's human experience. He was never married, so he didn't face those kinds of challenges. <laughs> That's a bad example, actually. You know, It's <laughs> wonderful, but, uh, but what I'm trying to say is for a person who's maybe lost a marriage and gone through divorce, can Jesus identify with me in my loss? And the answer is yes, he can. He has struggled in humanity with the experiences of humanity that we all face to enter into the specific. The specificness of my challenge. He doesn't have to have every single person's experience in order to identify. He doesn't experience every outworking of a temptation to know that temptation has this particular feel or pull, a pressure, a force. At the root of all temptation is really this, to not trust God in a given situation. That's what Jesus felt. Would he trust God? Your will be done, not mine. And he never once committed that sin of not yielding to God's will in his life. Not yours, but my, or not my will, but yours be done, he said. So let, let's be honest with this thought too. Um, the one who has resisted temptation can feel the for, full force of a temptation more than the one who gives into a temptation. And the whole point is to understand that Jesus felt that. Jesus has been there so that he honestly can identify with you in your situation. It says so in this verse with the word empathize. You see that one there? This is the NIV, by the way, the New International Version. If you have a different version of the Bible or even an earlier one of the NIV, it might say sympathize, right? Yours might say that, and and that's fine. Um, Both are good. Uh, Depending on your translation, it's going to have one of those two words. And what it's trying to say, um, maybe in a distinguishable factor, is that some believe the word sympathize carries a little bit more that you feel sorry for someone. Whereas to empathize is to genuinely enter into the feelings that that person has in that moment. So that's the distinguishing in the English language. And I think that what we're actually looking at here is Jesus empathizes. He knows what it feels like. He knows what you're going through. But you might say, well, how come I don't feel it? Listen, you have to trust him. You have to believe you have a high priest who has your best interest in mind and that he is empathetically understanding 
He knows your weaknesses. The other passage I read talked about being gentle. Okay, if an earthly priest is gentle with the people, so is Jesus Christ because he knows our humanity. God is not distant. He is fully present and he understands your struggle. So how much of our human experience did Jesus go through in order to be an empathetic high priest? Also answered in Hebrews 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, the children being us, humans, he, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that's Satan. That is the devil. Oh, right there. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I just want us to understand, whatever we are going through at this time, and I know it's a lot. I know for some people they are really going through the hardest stuff they've ever gone through in their life. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not distant I am present. I know what you're going through. I haven't left. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I walk with you through it. So in our sufferings, in our temptations, whatever that looks like, do not think to yourself, God does not know what I'm going through. He is distant and he does not care. That's a lie of the enemy. That's a lie of the devil. That's the one we must resist. He is fully present and he understands what you're going through. The incarnation of Jesus is fourthly, this is my fourth point, is an invitation. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to you to draw near to God. That's why it says, let us draw near some versions, let us then approach God's throne. I love that verse. Um, Andrew Murray said, the one work of the high priest is to bring us near to God. In my sinfulness, in my failure, in my weakness, in my frailty, in my humanity, in my apathy, in my patheticness, I don't want to approach the throne of God. How many of you, when you feel like you've really blown it, the first thing you're thinking, oh man, i got to go see God? Usually it's like we want to be like Adam and Eve and go and hide, and we don't want to go see God. Why? Because we feel ashamed, we feel unworthy, we feel like we don't deserve it, and that's exactly the point, we don't. And therein lies the power of the Incarnation. That at the heart of Christianity is an understanding that there's a God who empathizes with our weakness. That's why Jesus came. And then he goes on to say, come, come to my throne. Well, what kind of a throne? Throne of judgment? No, come to my throne of grace where you will find mercy and you'll find grace in your time of need. That's what we're invited to. That's the invitation. That's the amazingness of the incarnation that I don't want us to lose today, that it ends in an invitation. He doesn't just say, yeah, I know what you're going through. He says, yeah, I know what you're going through and I know where you need to come to. Come to my throne. You know, in our time of need, don't run from God. Run to him. God knows our struggles, and he wants us to come to him. We carry around in our pocket a treasure. We don't know the value of it because we fail to stop and reflect on it. And that's what we're doing this Christmas with this theme. The incarnation of God is the grand miracle of Christianity. And in this sermon series, we're inviting all of us, all of us, to pause and reflect and go deeper in our understanding of what it means that Jesus Christ came in human form to be the savior of the world, to be my savior, personally. For unto us a child is born, 
I want you to have these verses in your minds and hearts this week as we go and think about what it means that Jesus uh, has come in human form as our high priest. We're going to be heading into communion today, and um, it's going to be a little different than we often do it. I, I hope that you all had the opportunity to have one of these. If you did not receive one of these when you came in, just raise your hand. Our ushers are ready with a few more. Just raise your hand if you didn't get one. We have one up on this side over here, Kevin. Anyone else on this side? Um, and, and here's how we're going to do communion today. The bread and the juice represent the life of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. He went there to pay for the price of sin once for all, that that sacrifice completed what God required. He rose to life again, that sin and death could be conquered, that even though we die, yet shall we live. That's what this is all about. And he came into the world in order to do this for us. So we're going to listen to a song that reflects on what kind of father, what kind of king, what kind of son would come into this world to do that for us that we might be made right with God and that he identifies with us in our struggle and he doesn't say, I'm sorry, you're not worthy, go away. He says, come to my throne, receive mercy and find grace. That's what this table represents. So we're going to listen to a song. You can participate whenever you would like with the bread and with the cup. The song is about four minutes long, and when it ends, the worship team is going to come up, and we're going to reflect together with two closing songs. So I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we'll watch this video together. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in your plan of redemption, it included Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who came into this world to save us. Thank you that you don't just, um, you don't just understand what we're going through. You feel it. You know. You've been here. You entered into humanity and you felt the full force of temptation, of struggle, of whether or not you would trust your Father. Help us, Lord, to understand that in our own struggle, we can trust you completely and that you are not distant. You are near. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.